Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are the pro propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Now, I just want to ask you then about something else he said in his speech, which is about um, the collective punishment, as he put it, of the Palestinian people. And I want to talk about that in the context of the blockade and keeping fuel out of Gaza. I just wonder if you think that that is really necessary. You know, I'm, I'm very puzzled by the constant uh, concern which the world and, uh, and also Britain, I must say, Mark, is showing for the Palestinian people and is actually showing for these horrible, inhuman animals who have done the worst atrocities that this century has seen and the worst atrocities that Jews have suffered since the Holocaust. I mean, you know, when, when the United States reacted to 9-11, I don't remember people shedding tears for the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Your country, Mark, actually, Britain, actually joined them and even sent your royals to fight in Afghanistan. When the, when Russia, when the Ukrainians reacted to Russia's invasion, I don't remember people worrying about the poor Russian soldiers and whether they had enough food. All of a sudden, when it comes but to is Israel, the, is the everybody is becoming a great mm. humanitarian, totally, you know, totally uh, forgetting yep. what happened two and a half weeks ago, which is unforgettable and unforgiven. Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. You may have listened to our emergency broadcast last week on the genocide in Gaza, which started with the whirlwind story of Israel's bombing of the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital the single deadliest war crime ever committed by Israel and Gaza. The morning we published the episode, all of the mass media had flipped the script, running with the Israeli narrative that the hospital was in fact bombed by an errant Palestinian rocket, not just trumpeted by every media outlet, but Joe Biden himself. It killed the virality of the story. But after a few days enough news media was able to do their own visual investigations to debunk Israel's absurd narrative. Even the New York Times concluded that Israel's story couldn't be true. The so-called evidence provided by Israel included a fake recording pretending to be an intercepted phone call between two Hamas leaders discussing the accidental strike on the hospital. This, too, was proven to be a total fabrication which is the perfect example of the lengths Israel will go to lie to the world about what they are doing. Another update I'm extremely heartbroken to report. In that episode, we featured messages sent to us from three of our colleagues in Gaza. Since the broadcast, one of them, our anonymous co-producer, has had his family home destroyed. Moz, the main videographer for Gaza Fights for Freedom, lost his brother to an Israeli airstrike where he was sheltering in a home with 30 other civilians that were also killed, mainly women and children. And worst of all, Ahmed Abu Artema, journalist and lead organizer of the Great March of Return protests, was seriously wounded 
when his home was hit by a bomb. Five of Ahmed's immediate family members were killed, and he is now in critical condition. The last message he put out was calling on everyone to organize and join as many protests as possible to stop this genocide. Overall, that last episode was mostly our raw reaction and rage to the horrors that were unfolding, shocking even to us. So I wanted to do another show that went back to the basics and helped portray the situation in Gaza from a Palestinian perspective. With so many thousands of people learning about Palestine for the first time, I wanted this episode to be a resource for them and something people who already support Palestine can learn from too. To do that, I wanted to bring on someone who was born and raised in Gaza, and one of the few able to find a way out. I'm joined here in studio by Mohammed. Mohammed is an activist for Palestinian rights here in Portland. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Files podcast today. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Mohammed, we just had an event together uh, at the Clinton Street Theater. I I was honored to be joined by you um, for a Q&A following the showing of Gaza Fights for Freedom. I thought, you know, what you said was extremely important. And that's why I wanted to have you on today was just to kind of share more of your perspective, your story. Um, I know that you are from Gaza. Um, Can you just first speak to where you're from, like where you're from, where your family is from, what brought you here to the United States. And yeah, just just walk us through that a little bit. Um, the honor actually was mine. I'm uh, glad to be alongside you presenting such a great film. Um, about me, I'm a Palestinian. Uh, I lived in Gaza my entire life up to when I moved to the U.S. here. Um, My family originally is from Yaffa, my dad's family, which currently known as Yaffa, a city next to Tel Aviv. And my mom's family is from Ramla. And both families were expelled to the Gaza Strip as refugees in 1948, and they've been living there since. Uh, I grew up most of my life in Khan Yunis, uh, in the south of Gaza Strip. Um, most of, like most of my life, I grew up in like uh, Honorwa schools, which is like the schools that were founded to care and to uh, educate like all the refugees in Gaza Strip, which is like one of the main things that define the Gaza Strip as it's technically the biggest refugee camp in the Middle East. That's what it is, as 70% of the Gaza Strip population are refugees. Um, I finished my school in Gaza, and I applied for uh, a scholarship to come to study my master's degree in the U.S., and that's how I came here. I've been here since about 10 years ago, and that's where I was able to meet my wife now and start a family here and call this Portland City my home. (laughs) 
That's that's beautiful. Is there anything else about Gaza that you feel people should know that's being misconstrued? I mean, there's a lot that's being misconstrued. We could talk all day about that. But is there anything in particular about the impediments of movement, things like that, um, and just the inability really to freely like move around? I mean, that's one of the most basic human rights is to be able to move freely wherever you want to. I mean, the list is long. <laughs> so where to begin? So you so you lived in Gaza under military occupation as well. So you had kind of both experiences of living with, with the Israeli occupation there and then under the blockade. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's what I wanted to say in regards to movement. It's like my entire life was like a series of unfortunate events of like restrictive movement. Like every single part about it. I was born on uh what do you call it? <laughs> um what do you call a curfew? Mm-hmm. I was born on a curfew in ninety-one. It was like during the the Iraq war. And I went to school as I told you in the Honorwa schools. My fam my mom's family lives in Gaza, in Gaza City. So when before two thousand five, before the removal of the settlements from Gaza, which Israel took all the settlements and figured out a new way to control and occupy Gaza from the outside. In order to go from Yunis to Gaza city, you have to go through two different checkpoints in order to go to the Gaza city. So you have to go through the checkpoint between Yunis and the central district, which is like Deir el-Balah, um, Nusayrat and Brej refugee camps. And you have to go to the one between the central district and Gaza City. And you have a really bad luck if you were stuck between the two checkpoints and they were closed because that means you're going to stay the night there. I remember me being a very young kid, like in less than 15 years old, going to the Gaza city to fix my glasses and being stuck on the border for more than eight hours, just by myself among like the only people I know are actually the people in the taxi. So I was by myself going there and being stuck for that long time. I still remember vividly the the times where they actually ask all of us, including my mom, my siblings, and the other people in the taxi to come outside, stand in line, and ask us, ask us to raise our pants, raise our shirts, before they let us go to the other side of the checkpoint. So freedom of movement is basically was embodied in there. Me trying to leave Gaza to the West Bank, to Jerusalem at the time, to get my American visa. After I got accepted in school, I got, I got the scholarship, I got all my paperwork there. What's left is to get the visa. I applied and I needed to do the visa interview. It took me three attempts in order to just like get out of Gaza to go to the West Bank. And that was like my second time ever 
to get out of Gaza to visit the West Bank. The first time I was four months old and it was in order for me to do a cataract surgery when I was a kid. That's the only two times I was able to leave Gaza. Trying to leave through the Egypt border to come to the U.S. in 2012 also was very, very hard and nerve-consuming because the border is always not open. Like the normal for the border is not open and the abnormal is like when it's open. And at that time in 2012, uh, some events were happening in Sinai that even caused more to that abnormality to happen when the border is open. So there was thousands in the, like the, the what do you call it? Like border crossing. The border barrier, crossing yeah. holes, thousands waiting to be able to cross. And me and one of my friends and a family, a dear family friend for uh, for me, were literally crying to the guards to let us just in to be like, this person has a future, has a scholarship. If he misses his flight, we cannot secure the funds for him to get another one. And I remember I clamped myself to the bus I gave up one of the, my bags and I held one of the bag that I have my documents with and my essential bag and I held the bus. And that's how I cross from the Gaza side to the Egyptian side. My God. So, and I'm, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. Like imagine how many people in the same situation as me, not to consider the sick people who need to get out for medical aid, or like medical attention or like to visit family or all the others who have been turned down that day. So all of my friends and colleagues in Gaza have never left Gaza Strip. My uncle, he's like almost 50 plus. He's never left Gaza for his entire life. When I came to the to Portland here, I was like, I just need to be in a car, be put on a highway, and just like been driven. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a joy just to be in a car on a highway nonstop. Why? Because that's something I've never experienced until I came here. And I don't know how to explain that joy to my family and friends in Gaza. You know, like going to California 12 hours nonstop, just like go. To, to explain that is like you're explaining the moon and the stars and some other stuff to them. It's the same thing. Look, they've never experienced it. When Israeli forces were forced to leave in 2005 because of the resistance. Um, was there any kind of like visceral memories that you have that that potentially that there was some optimism that things would change? Or was there kind of this feeling that things would just kind of metamorphize into a, another 
stranglement of the Palestinian people. Like, what I, do you remember anything about that moment um, from your family and just from your community about like the transition into, like you said, this occupation from this external occupation and siege? I mean, before that, like in pre two thousand five, I I remember like what we used to feel every night. Like I remember seeing the bullets from our window. I remember when one of the bullets, it was like, what do you call it? Like a very, like a bullet at the end of its trajectory. And we, my uncle was lucky. He was like sitting next to my mom in our home. We live on the third floor. The bullet broke the window and literally lied on the side of my uncle. Just like laid there. That's like a real thing. Like if I, like there's no way to tell. And we were kids, we were like, uh, that was like how much? I was. I think I was like 12. We were sitting, the electricity was off and uh, it just like laid there. We used to call the bullets as like small dates flying in the sky. Um, I lost a classmate when I was in elementary school. I used to go to school in uh, the morning and see like the class walls have holes in it because all of the bombing that we used to hear. Uh, we stopped having school for multiple times because there was like an invasion. Um, we also like did not have to go to school or like we were like taken out of school because the schools are next to the hospitals. The Gaza Strip is a very dense place. So there is no place to have like separation between all of these facilities. So our schools were literally in front of the hospital. So whenever there is like a funeral for a murder, we will have to be taken out of school because a clash is imminent. Like most of the time in a funeral for a murder in that time, pre-2005, as was like every time you have like a funeral for a murder is a chance that there could be a clash. And a clash, I mean by, like, you will find a tank in mm-hmm. front of people carrying a body. So that's what I remember from that time. From the time where the settlements left Gaza, I remember people were happy. Because, like, the reality did not set in yet. I remember like, we were so happy to finally, for the first time, in years, we were able to actually taste the sardine from the shore of Khan Yunis. You know, remembering that is like, I'm almost like crying here. Because like, we've nev- I've never remembered going to the shore of Khan Yunis. To go to the sea, we have to go either to Rafah or to the central district or to Gaza City in order to go to the sea. And the the seashore is like 40 minutes walking from my home. Uh, that's insane. 
So, yeah, I, I remember like people were happy. People were trying to just like go and just like put their feet in the sea. And yeah, we were happy. Then when we realized what's happening, we really didn't, it just like took us by surprise that like, oh, it's actually a false hope that like in order to leave, you have to have permission as before. In order to come, you have to have permission in order to get basic supplies, you have to have permission. So essentially it ended up a different phase for the same occupation. Just like you have to experience it in a different way. And then the bombardments every few years, this aerial massacre, this cowardly. Oh, yeah. And I mean, instead of like the tank, it's the plane. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of like a person in front of you, it's like an unmanned uh, object. So just like, I mean, you have the killing instead of like an invasion, you have like an F-16. We start to differentiate between, oh, this sound is for an Apache, this sound is for like an F-16, or this sound is for like an, an unmanned drone, or this sound is like for a like for a long time, we start seeing like those like exploring balloons in the sky. So we felt under surveillance more than before. It's just like, yeah, they're not next to us, but they're actually next to us. They literally just moved them a few kilometers. I mean, I, it, Israelis brag all the time about the surveillance that the Gaza Strip is under. They like sh- play conversations between civilian families and stuff like that. And, and it's just just to brag about the level of control and surveillance that exists there, which is pretty disturbing as well. Yeah, our telecommunication is controlled by them. Mm-hmm. Our ID system is controlled by them. Our passports are controlled by them. Um, like there's nothing can come by this calorie. They count the calories to us. So like, it's, it's mind blowing when you see like the bragging that like we gave them Gaza. Mm-hmm. 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 You hear that a lot. Yeah, or they say that it's not Gaza, it's Israel, is another thing they say, which we gave them a piece of Israel. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like your comparison of, you know, under the occupation, you had a soldier in a machine gun turret who was watching you. And then after you had a, a weather balloon with a high definition camera watching you, then you had under the occupation, you had tanks. Uh, and then afterwards, you had just this variety of military aircraft. Yeah, I mean, that was doing the killing. And so, what are your, you know, like, those years when you're after, when it was just the the blockade after the occupation left, you know, those are your like high school and undergraduate studies. Um, just what are your like what are the like the most impactful memories from that period and like when you really realized that things were going to be very different? And of course the 2009 war is in is in this as well, correct? Yeah, I mean 2008 war, it was crazy. And I, I want to correct here was under the occupation and moved to be under occupation. It's just mm-hmm. like a different phase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
because like our life has not changed to the better. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, you can go to Gaza City. That's the only improvement, really. Like you can go to the other, the Gaza City from Khanunis without uh, having a checkpoint in the middle, which is like, I'll take it, but it did not improve my life at all. So, and I don't know what's the question. Like, um, like what's the most impactful thing? It was like definitely the 2008. That was like, I was like in high school, coming back from school to home. And I stopped hearing everything. Like I just like had beeping in my ear. Um, we were scared and uh, I don't know, everything starts unfolding. It's like as if you're in, in a dream. All what I heard was like screaming. The first thing I started hearing, uh, people, we were we started to to run in the streets without hearing anything. Man, it was like a huge chaos. And when we start like gaining some conscious to understand what's happening, we start to realize like, oh, the entire Gaza Strip was hit at once and massive amount of casualties have been occurred. So that was like one of like the main defining things and the death toll was like massive, like the the people who were lost their lives in Gaza at that time was like unprecedented. Like we've never seen anything like that at that time. Soon like when we count like all the stuff that comes after and it's become like you know one of many unfortunately Uh, also look I'm recalling this I'm recalling now before that one of the most common things that used to happen between 2005 and 2008 is the Israeli planes will come very close to the you know, like to the, it will be able to be seen by the visible eye and will break the sound barrier over and over and over and over. And that sound is, will shock you to your core. And that's not the only thing. It will also like be able to break glass. So all the windows can be damaged at any time. They will break the sound barrier in the night, in the morning, in the day, in the middle of the night, anytime they want. And that was like as completely like an occurring thing. It was not just like they want to do it. Yeah, just terrorizing just for fun. Yeah, so many children have like bedwetting issues, Mm -hmm. PTSD, just from that sound. And like the mental take that this take on you, it's like being forced to listen to a bucket with drops of water by yourself in a cell. That amount of like stress and mental torture, that was like being suffered by two million people or one and a half million at that time. I mean, you you experienced it also, but it's like children who are born 
during basically growing up through every couple of years, they survive another. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to call it war. I mean, it's just like a bloodletting. It, it is just a massacre from the, the sky. And that's children are mm-hmm. experiencing this every few years. There's no time to process any of this for kids. Mike and I went and got this book. Um, can you grab that really quick, Mike? It, it's this book of children's drawings. I don't know if you heard about this controversy. It was, I, I forget where they were supposed to display these kids' drawings, but of course the display was labeled, basically it was like not not, not overtly called anti-Semitic, but it's like when your oppressor has the Star of David as a symbol of oppression, children are going to associate their oppression with whatever the colonizing force is displaying. And so there were like... It was the Museum of Children's Art in Oakland decided to display it. Yeah. And And then then there was so much backlash, they Mm -hmm. pulled it. I mean, children's drawings. And the drawings are harrowing. They're horrifying. It just shows bodies, blood, planes. I mean... You know, I, I just, I can't even wrap my mind around it. And the fact that they weren't even able to display these kids' drawings. And for what? You know, I mean, I don't even see any stars of David in these drawings, but it just shows you yeah. how. Some, yeah, some of the some of the drawings have a soldiers with a star David on their uniform, but like, that's literally what they have on it. I mean, here's the thing. Like, Israel was, like, really smart at... Um, basically presenting the ideology of the of Zionism and through that weaponizing the religion of Judaism. And it's a very, very tough when, like, look, look it's not just like the children of Gaza who were uh, duped by the representation of, like, the Jewish um, religion as like the face of Zionism here, but also look like, at the world. Like it's very very hard to criticize the state of Israel without walking that fine line between differentiating the ideology from the religion. Like I'm, I wish I am qualified to talk more about this, but when you are in Gaza, and the only thing you are presented with is the star of David, what are you going to expect? Like you have not, like none of those people in Gaza, except for very lucky few who are able to speak with the very lucky few who are able to come and visit Gaza who are Jewish. Nobody have seen like another Jewish person who is supportive of the Palestinian rights, which I would say like there are many around the world. Like there are not few. When I look at the Jewish Voice for Peace and then see like what they're doing, like I'm in like like I'm happy because like these people are my friends and are and they know my pain and uh, they are putting their names and their support for my people. So I'm I'm grateful when I see that. And I'm, I know for a fact that when the children of Gaza are able to see that, they will draw the Star of David in a totally different way. It's just like, how would you, yeah, how would you 
know the other side if you're not able to have the luxury to know the other side. I want to talk about what's going on now, Mohammed. I know it's very difficult. It's difficult for me. I can't imagine how how difficult it is for you. Um, first of all, is your family okay? Uh, no. They are safe mm-hmm. as much as the situation permit. Mm-hmm. Um, like we are like a big family who live in like two different buildings and there is more than 300 people in those two buildings if you account for the people who came to shelter in our homes. We were, I don't know if lucky is the right word or fortunate is the right word to be living in the south in Khanyuna city. But that's like where so many people have end up having to be evacuated and expelled from their homes to, to seek shelter in the south. So, so many families end up seeking shelter in our home and my cousins and uncle's homes next to us. Um, one of my cousins have been actually injured by an attack on my neighbor's house. Uh, that attack have completely destroyed their house and all of them have died. The only survivor is one six-year-old kid, a girl who yeah, who was like lucky to be under a table or like like a way to prevent like the collapse of the house to be on her. But everybody else, including a very dear neighbor to me, who I know like since I was a kid and um, yeah, and, uh, like losing him is a huge thing to me personally, and I assume I think everybody in the neighborhood is like completely hardened or hurt by his loss. And like, imagine his family, his children—they're just like gone. My cousin was literally just going passing by to come home when the attack has happened. The his friend who was with him has died. So uh, I'm say my family is safe, but nobody in Gaza is safe because that's the situation here. Um I mentioned before my mom's family is from Gaza. So that's all of her siblings, all of their children, all of their children, children. Like one of my uncles is older than the state of Israel. Like he was moved during the expulsion of 48. And now he had to flee his house. All of their houses have been destroyed or has suffered like severe and when I say it's destroyed, like it's un, like there's nothing, and one of their houses is like severely damaged, so like it need to be rebuilt anyway. And yeah, nobody, nothing in Gaza is safe, no place. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the fact that 1.1 million Palestinians are internally displaced and they're bombing the South, which is where they told people to flee. They're bombing the South. They dropped these leaflets on the in the North just saying everyone in this entire area is deemed a target, essentially. And if you aren't associated with terrorists, then leave. And it's like, where are you supposed to go? Where where are the 1.1 million Palestinians supposed to go? And, you know, my friends, his family is staying under a gas station right now, hoping that bombs don't fall on him. I, I And the fact that they are bombing targets in the South, they are bombing the South, where they told the refugees to go. Over and over again, they bombed aid convoys. They, they're bombing hospitals, mosques, all these protect, supposedly protected buildings, right? And it's all just, you just hear this ad nauseum, Muhammad, is that there's weapons caches. I mean, they can say whatever they want and people will just believe them. It doesn't matter if they bomb a mosque or a hospital. All they have to say is Hamas has a rocket launcher nearby and and so all the civilians are collateral damage and oh well. I mean, the situation there is like every time I call my family, I hear a bomb in the back, in the background. And I call at a random time, I don't plan it. Um... They bombing a hospital or bombing a church, like the church that's been bombed is one of the oldest churches in the world, and it was bombed. That's like older. The hospital that they bombed it was like older than the state of Israel. The church is a thousand years old church. Uh, whenever I see this, like I don't know how the world is just paralyzed in front of such terrorism. Like, we grew up believing that, like, oh, there's a human rights declaration, there's Geneva Convention. These things, we we studied them in school. And, like, to grow up to such reality, to see, like, none of this matter in the face of imperialism and essentially the state of Israel is, like, a huge letdown, to, to put it mildly. Um, hospitals, schools have been, like 62 teachers have been killed. I don't know the the count of like the journalists, but above seven, the last statistics Over I read 20. was, yeah, the last statistic I read was like that number. So it's mind blowing to see, like UN official, uh, like employees have been martyred. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's a carpet bombing. When we say that, we mean it. Like we've been carpet bombed since the October seven until now, nonstop. Every person, every spot is a target in Gaza, mm-hmm. and we scream, "Help us!" Since day one, since before day one, we've been asking the international community. And the people of the world help us since 1948, which at that time the Human Rights Declaration was made. As if the world is telling us from that time in 1948 that, yeah, we're signing on the Human Rights Mm -hmm. Declaration, but also we're okaying the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. It's a huge paradox to see 
and to grow up in such environments. Right. Well, you mentioned you grew up in the on the UN RWA schools, yeah. where it's like, okay, so the UN is is helping by educating you in the refugee camp, but there's nothing, you know, it's yeah. that's kind of where it ends. And there's like there's uh UN like aid warehouses. Like so there's there's a form of assistance uh for like the I mean, refugee situation, but not for the actually stopping Israel from doing it to people of Gaza. I mean, it's a life support. Like, we're keeping right. you alive, but yeah. we don't want you to get better. Right. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned, you used the term carpet bombing, which is quite accurate, uh, but it, it's like not just random carpet bombing. It's all very targeted and precise, what Israel's targeting. So, for example, when they blew up that church that you mentioned, they knew what they, they knew it there. They yeah, wasn't just, they, oh, we're carpet bombing, and there just happened no, to be a church there. They, they deliberately targeted they the got, church. They got warned. Yes. No, of course. And I, I just... Uh, and they got warned, like, very shortly before, so people did not even get yeah, the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually saw a really devastating story that just came out today saying that that attack may have basically wiped out Gaza's Christian population because it killed so many people. There's actually people who were killed who were the last of a family bloodline that literally dates back to the time of Christ. I mean, people from Bethlehem, when Jesus was born, their lineage extended, led them to be holed up in that church, escaping the bombing, and then they were killed there. Um, so that's, it's, uh, you know, it's genocidal. I mean, you're wiping it, out it an entire- It is genocide, like no matter how we put it. Like those people are our jewels. Mm. You know, like- we like they've been saying like we don't want to leave, mm-hmm. and to to basically target them with bombs is like what are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. And that's what when you say like oh Hamas 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 Hamas, okay let's let's surrender the idea that okay Hamas Hamas is Muslim. Why would you go and target the only Christian sites in Gaza and just like? Reduce them to oblivion. The Al Ahli Hospital and the church. Right, right. The Al Ahli Hospital, I've been there multiple times. It's a Christian cemetery. It's one of the oldest Christian cemeteries in the entire historic Palestine. And also, it's a church by itself and it's a hospital. So it's holy in two, three, three to four different levels. Mm. And it's reduced to oblivion because uh, Israel wanted to do it and the U.S. is supporting it. You also mentioned all the killing of the journalists. And I think that the number of dead journalists doesn't even accurately describe it because we know, we learned today that uh, the chief correspondent from Al Jazeera in Gaza, his entire family was just killed in an Israeli airstrike. His children, his wife. uh, And this is... It's we don't know if it was a direct targeting, but very much could be because it's also right at the same time a story came out uh, from Axios that said that when Blinken went and met with Qatar after he went to Israel and was like, "What can we do to to streamline this genocide?" He then went to Qatar and pressured the Prime Minister of Qatar to say, "You need to rein back Al Jazeera's coverage in Gaza." So he told the Prime Minister of Qatar, "You have to, you have to get them to shut up at, with the coverage about Gaza," uh, which they didn't do. And then you have uh, the family of the chief correspondent in Gaza, um, who he could very well have been with at the time, you know, eliminated. So you know, that's the levels of depravity are just kind of hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, it's shocking, even for someone who who's known Israel's crimes for a long time. I mean, it's even it's even shocking me when I 
I thought they couldn't get any worse. You know, I wish I had the luxury to care about Anthony Blinken. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really like disappointed and like feel that we, the Palestinian people, have been failed by the U.S. and by the international community over and over and over. And this is not an exception, unfortunately. Uh, but I would say to killing the families of the people that Israel target. Uh, Israel has been using this tactic forever. Like if they can't reach the person that they want, they would target all of their families. And that's been proven. And there's so many stories that has been, has it happened. So the fact that this has been intentional, it's not far from like the history of Israel. I would not put it past them, unfortunately. You mentioned that amid the death and destruction that we're hearing unfold every day, and it and it seems to be compounding and getting worse actually by the day. Um, the casualties of children alone are over three thousand, I think, um, at the time of this recording. It's it's incomprehensible carnage. And then when you it, you're so blindsided by the death and the destruction that. It's kind of like compartmentalized the fact of, you know, like you said, people on dialysis, babies in need of formula. I mean, to cut off water and electricity, this is an unprecedented situation in human history that you have millions of people caged in a concentration camp. You cut off water and electricity and then you just bomb them, relentlessly bomb them and to think of the people in need of medical attention, targeting the hospitals, the the generators once they run out of fuel, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? The water. I mean, already the water was toxic, mm-hmm. right? And and now you, I mean, I just keep thinking of babies because we had to, we feed our baby formula and like babies won't live. <laughs> they will not live. I mean, unless yeah, you humans are like, fragile creatures. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's 200, uh, 2.2 billion, million people. They have, they're a society. They have like cancer patients like that are unable to receive their um, chemotherapy. There's people on dialysis. There's people who need physical therapy. There's people who need like, women need to, like, women will not stop giving birth because right. there is a war. right. Um, Can you imagine? Like, imagine, like, and it's happening. People, look, women are giving birth under attack. Um, People are getting sick. We're still, like, we don't know if we're still safe from COVID or not. It's the flu season. It's, you know, like the, and our medical sector has been suffering and been on the verge of collapse since before this. Our electricity system has been on the verge of collapse since before this. And we've been telling the world, like, it's not livable. The UN mentioned in 2012 or 14 that Gaza will not be livable by 2020. We're in 2023. Um, Just to imagine that, like, war does not care about anybody, but... The same situation cannot be said about like or the human condition. Like, if you're gonna be sick, 
your body doesn't care if there is a war around you. If you need, if you're a baby and need formula, look, my brother was telling me, we will go and stand for hours just to get a bag of bread. The water is, look, non-existent. Since the beginning of the war till now, we don't have electricity. And that's my family. We don't have internet. The only way for me to contact my family is through cellular. And I'm not alone. Like when I talk to my my friends who are from Gaza, their families are the same. Um, we talk, We think of Gaza as it's like the... What do you call it? The face of like those people who are steadfast and amazing and strong. Yes, they are stronger than all of us. They are facing the fifth strongest army in the world with the nuclear power capabilities. But at the same time, they're humans. And it's too much to expect from them. What are we expecting right now? It's too much to expect from babies not to be born. I just found out my colleague, um, his wife is pregnant. He just found out two days ago. And the beautiful news, but also just how do you process that? How do you process any of this? And like you said, there's no time to grieve any of it because you just have to keep moving and you have to keep, you have to do everything that you can to survive. Yeah, and survival is. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna survive this, no matter the loss and no matter how grave is the situation. I I know my people; they're survivors, and the issue is like, how much are we gonna stand as an international community, mm-hmm. looking in our faces in the mirror? And knowing that we let such atrocity happen. You know, because like life will happen. People will be born, people will get married, people will you know, will look all the things, you know, people lovers will still give flowers to their lovers. <laughs> but we're like the international community, especially here in the US, how are those people are gonna go on their daily life? knowing that they actually let such genocide happen. And I'm saying that to our Congress people and to the president. And after that, I'm saying that to the voters. Like, you signed on this. Like, if the U.S. is doing this destruction, will you be happy? Yeah, you know, even the most, even the most tame response was just like a ceasefire, and and some are even framing it as like a temporary ceasefire to let humanitarian aid in. Even the most like restrained, tame, even if you say Israel has the right to defend itself, like members of like even if members of Congress are like Israel has the right to defend itself, condemn the Palestinian resistance, like all this stuff, but maybe you should stop 
like bombing all these civilians right now and lets them aid in. I mean, they're considered, I mean, they were called repugnant by the Biden administration. Um, but the number is minuscule. I mean, it's like, I think 13 members of Congress now, which notably, uh, none of them are white. All of the members of Congress who have supported the ceasefire, it's 100% of them are people of color. So there's like this, I guess, settler colonial solidarity going on. Um, but uh, it's just, you know, outrageous that the level to which the U.S. government is, you know, even the governor of, of California went to Israel to like back them up on it. It's like, why are you, why is the governor of California going? Yeah, yeah, Newsom was just there you know, greenlighting the mask girl. So I guess he wants to be president. So he's got to like first go and genuflect. Like they're laying backwards for them, unfortunately. Um, but to be honest, you can condemn Hamas. Uh, condemn whatever, like but stop this killing. You know? yeah. Stop what's happening. What's happening is not in anybody's interest. You know, uh, like how killing... Thousands and thousands of people is gonna fix this. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the US tried it. Mm -hmm. Did they fix it? Look what the mess that's, that's happening in Iraq right now. Mm -hmm. um, will ne killing will never fix it. Look at history. If that did not teach you anything, I don't know what will. Yeah. Um, if yeah, I will condemn Hamas. If tomorrow you will go and stop, wait, if you stop the fire, I will condemn Hamas. I'll be like, yeah, we want Hamas, Hamas to be condemned. And, but but just like stop the killing, give Even temporarily, people need to breathe. People don't have time to bury this. They're dead. You know what's like the first thing that came in the aid for like when they allowed the aid to come through the border, through the Egypt border? Guess what? Body bags. Is that what the world wants us to have? Like, the entire situation, when you look at it, is insane. And they want you to be just saying nothing, doing nothing, and just expect that the killing is like a collateral damage. They want you guys to be polite victims of genocide. Yeah, and like, and oh yeah, Biden will send billions of dollars, unfortunately, to the state of Israel and send us like a million or like few million. Ten, what? How much did they send? Like ten? It was He's asking for fourteen billion. Yeah, but which is but four billion more than Israel even asked for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also wow. like he sent, I think, some aid for the PA or for Gaza, I think, and it was like. Well, look, what are they it was do? 20 trucks when normally there's like hundreds going in every day, yeah. yeah. And they were like one quarter full. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, I guess they were full of body bags, so. Uh -huh. Yeah. Thanks, Biden. Thanks, Biden. Yeah, look, you're... Sick fuck. <laughs> like, and like, are are you going to be lucky, Gazan, if you were like an American-made body bag? Right. It's like what, like the pride of America. Uh, oh my god! It's very yeah. like surreal when you think about it. Absolutely, but there's like basically two wings in the U.S. political establishment. There's like the Republican side that you have people tweeting literally shit like, um, 
you say civilians in, in Gaza are innocent. Well, they elected Hamas, so nobody's innocent. Or the civilians were cheering on October 7th, therefore the civilians are just as deserving as Hamas retaliation. So you have like the right-wingers that are openly saying, yes, you should just target civilians and, you know, it's it's they deserve it. Um, but then you have like the liberal democratic side that's saying, we completely support everything Israel is doing, but we understand that Hamas does not represent all of the people of Gaza and that we support, you know, by all of Biden's rhetoric now and, and the Biden administration and the Democrats that are supporting this are, we support Israel and what they're doing, but we acknowledge that Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people. And ultimately it will be good for the Palestinian people to get rid of Hamas in this war and stuff like that. So you have kind of two wings, but it the end result is literally the same. I mean, there's no difference at all, but they don't like any Palestinian faction unless they're like total collaborators to Israel. So it's like, they're able to use Hamas as like the the escape, the picture of like, this is what the Palestinian resistance is when they don't like any of them. They don't like the communists. They don't like the, the liberal, they just, they just only like the ones that are just complete collaborators with the Israeli state. So they don't accept I mean, any. They say Hamas does not recognize the state of Israel. The PLO does recognize it. Right. <laughs> what they did, what did they gain? Right. You know, like the the all the PLO and the PA are literally have like complete cooperation with Israel. Right. What did they gain? Look mm -hmm. at the West Bank. Mm -hmm. You know, the the apartheid wall is ensuring every day. But the apartheid wall and the settlements are ensuring every day that there will be never a Palestinian state. Exactly. So, like, it's very, very tough. And going back to the the Democrats or like Republicans, I can't understand how stopping the killing is going to change how you look at Israel. You can stop the killing and support Israel. Because we're not asking for that much. We're asking for the killing to stop and for fixing the situation in a different in a different way. You can send the Red Cross, you can send the UN to retrieve like the hostages or the prisoners in Hamas hand. Uh, Hamas said so. Like, we want to handle the situation in a way that, like, to give, to have time to send the hostages back. Because even the bombing is not, not ensuring the safety of those people. Right, and they've already killed, like, 30 Israeli hostages from the bombing. Yeah, so, yeah. like, how are you going to be, like, whether you're a Democrat or... Uh, Republican are saying that you need to protect the hostages, uh, hostages and also support. I don't know. It's like it's a, it's a very yeah, puzzling a, thing. You the know? paradox. Going back to yeah. the paradox, it's like you can't. Yeah, you can't hold. Do I have like a cake and time. eat it? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, as a Palestinian, you, I feel like the rhetoric that is um, deployed by Western politicians, pundits, and the media. I mean, it like completely encapsulates the definition of gaslighting 
to Palestinians in general. And to this goes tea. back to like, I mean, even right after 9-11, the, the images that we saw constantly were a group of Palestinians dancing in the street. I don't even think that was like real time. It was just used as B-roll constantly. And think about like, like people. No, of course. No, it was like, no, 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 exactly. And I think even later it came out that that was like completely unrelated. But even if it were, it's like, who cares? Um, and and we just saw that over and over and over again. And like they and Palestinians were initially blamed for the attacks themselves. You had Israeli generals, and I think um, I forget who was the prime minister at the time, but they were all over the mainstream media saying, "Welcome to our war on terror." Now you can learn what we've been going through, and it just never stopped, Mohammed. I mean, every time Israel does something that is extremely egregious, the flotilla massacre was my light bulb moment. Um, and seeing how the mainstream media just basically just parrots the Israeli military propaganda ad nauseum and completely uncritically, and then goes beyond that where they actually just flip the narrative on its head. And that's Israel's entire playbook is flip reality on its head, say Palestinians are doing what you are really doing to them, and then obfuscate, confuse, say Palestinians are are killing themselves. I mean, you have Naftali Bennett, who was um, the prime minister for a, a little bit, saying that Palestinians were committing self-genocide. That is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, looking at like, the span of human history and saying that a, a people are committing self-genocide is just m- mind-boggling. And these things are not even questioned by the media that's interviewing these people. I could go, we could talk all day about the media coverage and the genocidal rhetoric being in, being put out there by Israeli officials. And I don't want to subject you to that because I know that you're limiting your news consumption, uh, understandably so at this moment. But I guess just like as a Palestinian, incurring this kind of level of gaslighting that's essentially like global. Um, of course, the Arab world, a lot of like... Latin America and a lot of other countries are recognizing reality, but having reality flipped on its head by essentially all Western powers and imperialist collaborators and telling you, the victims of of this ongoing genocide, that you are the perpetrators. I mean, it's, uh, I'm scared, uh, to be honest, to see like I'm being, my people are being villainified every single day. If you look at the news, why would you look back far? Like, you just, like, read the news right now. Um, when any coverage of, like, life or anything about Black Palestine, the headline is always, like, Israel, like, there is Israeli people have been killed, but the Palestinian people have died. As if they just like die out of thin air without a cause. So why the Israeli person being killed and the Palestinian people just like die? Uh, Both lives have the same equal sanctity. Why are we villainifying or like making a death less equal than other? And why are we defending that? Um, the unfortunately, we have to recognize that like Israel have like a very huge amount of influence on the U.S. politics and the U.S. media, including lobbying and uh, 
yeah, lobbying and whatever else that they have, they are able to. I mean, they are a nation, fully recognized and have its all, all the support of the world. So they are capable of producing propaganda and supporting it and lobbying and all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, they're and like they have like a good ally for it, unfortunately. Um, but. As a Palestinian person, I know I have the truth. And yeah, we can wait one year, two years, 100 years. The truth is not going to change. We learned that from history. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, just just two very recent examples. Instagram was caught putting like literally the word terrorist next to Arabic translation of just Palestinians' names. And Meta apologized and said, oh, their algorithm, their algorithm was just racist, Mohammed. I guess the, the, the AI. Yeah, yeah. The AI. yeah, I saw that. It's like the translation of like Palestine is like terrorist. Right. Yeah, and then if you look up what do terrorists wear, you brought this to my attention, literally until today, it was like the first search result was kafia. Palestinian kafia, absolutely mind-blowing, just insidious levels of propaganda that you, it's not even fully like apparent until you really kind of unpack all of this. And I even saw, and I want to talk about liberals really quickly because I saw a liberal saying this and I was just appalled. He was saying the phrase from the river to the sea literally means that the that it's a genocidal incitement for all Jews worldwide to be killed. And I was just completely taken aback because I was just like, doesn't this just mean to lift the occupation from the river to the sea? Yeah, it's not just a random liberal. It's like a a somewhat famous liberal filmmaker and commentator, but we won't say who he is. But Yeah. uh. Um, So I guess I want you to talk about, because you had a really powerful statement about the right to return and why this is so important. And and it folds into the Great March of Return. It folds into the, you, you mentioned the UN Resolution 194, the amount of just refugees that still exist, the fact that Israel's trying to push out everyone into Gaza to just become refugees another time over. This is a really powerful sentiment from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. Um, and it and it all kind of, you know, it, it harkens back to the 1948. And I just want you to touch upon what that phrase means to you and the symbolism of that and also just the concrete nature of what the right to return actually means. Uh, well, the, I'm a refugee myself. Like, well, like my family is refugee, as I mentioned earlier. So, and uh, my homeland, where my family were expelled, is between the river and the sea. It's as simple as that. Like, um, I. It's like the right of return is like one of a few things that every single Palestinian wherever on this earth, agree upon. Okay? There might be Hamas, there might be Fatah, there might be PFLP, there might be whatever self-identified Palestinian sector or, or a person. They will all agree on the right of return. It's one of the few miracles that makes all of the Palestinians <laughs> agree on one thing. So, 
uh, it's significant for us because it it uh, encapsulates the entire Palestinian issue in one thing that we are the Palestinian people and we have this right not just self-inflicted right but no it was like recognized by the entire United Nation and it was it's recognized by all all nations including the US they recognize the right of return they just like don't know how to in, how to deal with it because i think they might regret it but it's it what makes the palestinian question relevant now and it's what's going to keep the palestinian question relevant a thousand years from now so there's no way to imagine palestine without the right of return whether it was like on a small piece of land, a big piece of land, the right of return has to be in the center of that. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I uh, like whenever the the river and the sea comes to mind. Yeah, like all of our lands, all of our homes were between the river and the sea, and. I think if Israel is being threatened by that, I think, I don't know, because we're not asking for much. We're asking for equal rights, lifting the occupation, and the right to return. All of these things are between the river and the sea. Right. And the it's West like, Bank and Gaza are between the river right. and the sea. It's like, what does that say about your state yeah. if that's a threat? Yeah, to lift freedom. the occupy freedom. freedom. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Palestinians should not. Be- well, it's so it doesn't mean that all Jews in the entire world should be mass murdered. I mean, like, <laughs> the state of Israel really, really, really like, like where in, like, the Zionist project have disrupted a very beautiful Palestine. Mm. You know, before nineteen forty-eight, Palestinian Jews. Uh, Christians and Muslims have been living there. Imagine what would come from such harmony. That was like, you know, like unique to that region. Not really unique to me because like there was like in other countries. But in there, our grandparents told us that I would have never thought what this person Religion is. Religion was a secondary thing. Mm. You know, whether that person was like Jewish, Christian, or uh, Muslim. And like my grandfather, my grandfather was like from Yaffa. That's where like one of like the most famous Jewish neighborhoods at mm. that time. So going back at it, imagine what would have been if we allowed this land just to develop mm. with its beauty of all of the three religions there. Mm. But with the exist with the introduction of the Zionist project and then the, the state of Israel, that natural flow of human harmony has been disrupted. And now we have the Christian being attacked the Muslim being villainified, and the Jewish being attacked too. 
and also allowing all of these three and whatever in between to be to become more and more extreme and we're suffering from that mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate yeah and it's all in Israel and the US's control where the Palestinian people have have, have showed the the willingness to negotiate and make concessions and and do whatever is needed to bring about peace uh, and a, to live under equality. But Israel, that's not in Israel's plans. They want an exclusively Jewish state with separate rights. Uh, they've been very clear about that. And so it's, I mean, there's no there's no more concessions that can be made by Palestinians without giving up, without just saying, okay, we'll just leave and we give up the right to return and we'll just leave Palestine and go. I mean, that's what elsewhere. a colonial project want. What, what, if you're a settler colonial, what do you want? You want a land with as many resources in it as possible, with as many of people in it to be taken out. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Israeli media, like you don't have to look at Gaza or the West Bank, look at Israel itself. The Palestinian people inside Israel are being discriminated against every single day. In like since like the Netanyahu's attack on like their legislative body, uh, their judicial body, Palestinian people are being attacked every single day. They're not able to like they're scared to leave their houses at night because they're afraid from. Uh, fanatic mm-hmm. uh, Israeli citizens who are attacking them. And that's something like never. Like when all the debates in between the Israeli governments and they had elections over and over and over, uh, in none of these debates have recognized that there's Palestinian under this country's control. Mm. Like nobody when they discuss the future of the Israeli state, is recognizing that the elephant in the room, that there is people under occupation and uh, they need to debate it. No, with all of the differences inside the Israeli political spectrum, Mm. there is an agreement that Mm -hmm. like the Palestinian people are just a collateral damage. Mm -hmm. And I, I would let people just like think of that, whatever. It's such a good point, Mohammed. Because yeah, you're right. All of essentially all of Israeli society, other than a few anti-Zionists who probably, you know, either have fled or want to flee, um, but basically there's a consensus within Israeli society because that's what settler colonial states are. I mean, it, it's you're born and bred into that system, um, and the Israeli elites and all of the politicians essentially are on board with the colonial project. Obviously, that that's what the state of Israel is. But American politicians speak a different language to Americans, where it's all about the two-state solution. They don't even acknowledge the reality within Israeli society. They continue to keep up this facade that Israeli politics that that Netanyahu's just an abnormality. He's he's. He doesn't represent Israeli society. It's like let's you know we we mentioned that about the Palestinians. Oh, Hamas doesn't represent Palestinian society. Well, they always pretend. They give Israel the benefit of the doubt all the time. They're like, oh, Netanyahu's just extreme. He's like the Trump um, because they want it to be palatable. They want this genocidal, you know, the occupation. They want the siege. They want all of that to be palatable to like liberal audiences. And so that's why you saw Biden even saying. 
look, we got to keep this operation going. So let's just allow a little bit of aid in because this is getting kind of like looks bad. looks bad for the international community. And it's just it's insulting to anyone with a critical mind that this is what like Mike mentioned, I mean, the the differentiation between both parties is just it it's it doesn't matter because we know the reality and it's offensive to be told that that is not the reality. Um, but I guess how do you feel because you know, even though politicians are on board with this and it's really disheartening and distressing to see that a ceasefire is somehow this controversial thing, the masses, there, I, I was so worried um, that, you know, after October 7th, that there would be this mass chilling effect on Palestine solidarity demonstrations and actions around the world. And what we have seen in the last several weeks of unprecedented demonstrations worldwide, it is a global mass movement of people in the streets doing sit-ins, Jewish-led actions here in Portland, a really moving one of hundreds of people, Jewish-led actions, doing sit-ins in Congress, getting arrested in mass. All of this is happening. You don't see pro-Israel marches around the world. This is just a ruling class thing that's being upheld. This is, this does not represent the masses of society. And it used to be a very fringe issue. Um, you know, just 10 years ago, it was a very fringe issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess thinking back, like, I think the first, Abby said her, it was the Flotilla Massacre in 2010. That was like her wake-up moment with Palestine. For me, it was the 2008-2009 war. Um, I just, like, was very obsessed with just constantly re see, looking at every photo that came out of it. And I just remember, like, feeling totally insane that, like, nobody cared. I was like, how can nobody care that this is happening? It's completely nuts. Demonstrations then were historic for pro-Palestine demonstrations, but they were still, you know, somewhat small. Um, and I think that there's been a, a shift. And so you kind of, you came to the U.S. around the time where it was still like a kind of a fringe issue um, and not, not very, but that that's kind of changed a lot, especially since 21. And so just your, your perspective on how it feels to be in this, obviously there's this extremely dark side to this of worrying about your friends and family in Gaza and seeing what's happening to your people and, and all of this. But there's this other side of something is, something seems to be changing in public consciousness, especially in the United States and how you feel since you've been in the U.S., how, how you've seen that change and if you have any optimism about it. Uh, I feel like I'm committing suicide if I didn't have optimism. <laughs> um, so I do. Uh, but I have to recognize something here. Yes, the awareness that the world is having is increasing with by every single massacre Israel's commit. You know? And uh, yes, I've witnessed like a gradual popularity among especially like the younger people that like, oh, this thing is unacceptable. We want to find a way to in this occupation, in this misery. But on the other hand, when me as a Palestinian seeing this, the only question I find myself asking is like, how many people mm -hmm. need to die mm -hmm. per one person to know more and be educated? How much blood do we need to shed as Palestinian people in order for more awareness to happen? By this rate, the entire Palestinian people will die and will bleed and their blood will be dry 
and not enough people will be aware. Like we don't have that much numbers, you know. Like we're, we're like maximum twelve million people. Uh, it, it's a very very. It's like sheafing your own skin with a knife. Like yeah, it, there could be a cancer there, but at the same time, you're hurting yourself. Like we we need more awareness without bloodshed. Mm. We need more, like, I ask myself a question, like, why all of this care about Palestine? And this is a self-criticism for all the people who support Palestine, including my people here who support Palestine in Portland and elsewhere. It's like, how come, and all the media here too, how come we only look at Palestine when there's a big thing happening? Mm-hmm. What about the the day-to-day life. I mean, if you look at the situation and like just drive from Gaza to Tel Aviv, okay? Just, you don't need to do anything, just drive through. You would see the difference in the quality of life. There's people who are celebrating life, having all the resources that they want, having water, having everything available to them. Once you cross to Gaza, you will find houses that are on the verge of collapse, uh, not good infrastructure, uh, not good medical care. Uh, Like every single, uh, like people, people are not happy. Uh, people are suffering, people are not able to work, are not able to provide for their families. Uh, just like you will know that's through one drive. Well, nobody's looking at that when there is no big war or big bloodshed that's happening. Like we need to recognize that between those wars, people lived. You know, we need to recognize that between those big operations that were waged against Gaza, people have lived and people have lacked water, people have lacked electricity, people have lacked medicine, people have lacked so many aspects of a life that makes your life just livable. So, yeah, awareness has been risen, but at the same time, uh, the misery to awareness correlation has not equalized unfortunately I think that is where we should leave it because I I can't add anything to that I think those are really powerful concluding words that everyone should really sit back and think about Ahmed um, I just feel completely helpless I'm I, I don't I don't know I mean it's it's the most distressing thing to see all of this unfold. And it's always distressing because I, you know, my friends and colleagues who are Palestinian, it, it is always there, you know, and, and the fact that so many people have been displaced over the last several decades, it's how many dead kids is the threshold that we're willing to take collectively? How many dead kids? How many? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what listeners should take away from that is, you know, if this war or if this massacre, this genocide, this moment is what woke you up to Palestine, uh, don't leave the organizing and activism whenever this 
the bloodshed ends now. It's like any time, it's like, cause there is always important uh, awareness raising, BDS stuff. I mean, there's, there's all types of ways you can keep pushing the issue of Palestine and keep bringing more people into the struggle. Of course, it's easiest when there's a big catastrophe happening and it's everyone's upset about it and there's a big upsurge over it. That's when more people are brought, made aware of the issue. But those of us, uh, those who this was their moment of now under, just like we each of us had moments where we were like, this is insane and we never really stopped caring about it or being active around it since then, you know, stay in the streets until this thing is over and then uh, don't leave the organizing world and the advocacy world for it. Join Palestine solidarity groups take the lead from Palestinians in your community of what you can do as allies and join your local BDS networks because we need to challenge these unconstitutional laws across the country. We need to join the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, and we need to do a hell of a lot more. So stay tuned. Uh, and Mohammed, is there anything else that you want to say or um, give shout outs to any organizations that you feel are, are doing good work? Um, I mean, a shout out for Jewish Voice for Peace and uh, for um, like the Palestinians and the Jewish people who uh, brought the statement uh, in Portland to ask for this bloodshed to stop now. So I will echo that sentiment and I will ask people to do whatever it takes to let everybody in the Congress and the White House know that this is essential. This needs to stop now. Uh, ceasefire is needed. It's I can't stress that enough. It's more important than anything else at this moment. For me, like in order for people to start just like wrapping their head about what's happening, they need the ceasefire. Mm -hmm. Whatever else you want to do afterwards, of course, it's important. But right now, the most dying need right now is ceasefire. There is a, I just want to read it for the podcast really quick. I just had it. There is a, uh, <clears throat> there's a website that makes it really easy to do that. It's ceasefiretoday.com. If you go to ceasefiretoday.com, there's really easy links, not just sign a petition, but it'll put in your zip code and it'll tell you exactly, uh, have a form letter for you to send to your Congress people and all of that stuff so you can start harassing them. It has phone numbers for them as well as so you want to harass them by phone. But um, that's one of the sites that's been a good resource for people to, to push the ceasefire demand. Thank you so much, Mohammed, for joining us today. It was an incredible discussion and um, looking forward to working with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much.